We've been working our way through Daniel. I've been asked to look at chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Oh, king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what that writing means. So, <clears throat> Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. No pressure. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, You'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. 
Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And he acknowledged that the most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, pasin. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So this morning, we're going to do Daniel 5. I think we might even have uh, a magnificent PowerPoint. That's it. It's just got two headings. I've got two headings this morning. There's a lot of, uh, I don't know you probably are aware of this, a lot of general interest in, in UFOs, unidentified flying objects, strange phenomena, alien sightings, the paranormal, abductions, people who've been snatched up and taken to an alien spaceship, operated upon, and then put back in the world, never had that experience personally, but there are those who believe that they had an abduction. A number of uh, people, of course, who, who have their view are represented by TV programs. You may remember, some of you older ones may remember the X-Files. Um, they think that there's a lot of evidence for aliens from out there who are visiting our planet, but the governments of the world have locked the evidence and the material away in, in deep cabinets and, and call them the X-Files. This movement recently received a significant uh, boost when the government of the United States of America started to make some material available that uh, demonstrated the presence of UFOs in different parts of the world. So I don't know what you think about all that. I, I personally think it's a, it's a demonic 
um, manifestation of deception. But what amazes me about it all is this speculation, about this speculation is um, th that it exists in complete ignorance of the plain teaching of scripture. The Bible is full from beginning to end uh, of uh, stories about a visitor who came from out there, from another dimension, to visit our planet and to do us good. He came in the extraordinary vehicle of a virgin's room. He became a man of divine wisdom, divine power, divine character, and divine glory. The area around him for three years became a disease-free zone. Like E.T., he came into this world, and he was able to do the most amazing things and say the most amazing things. Everything about him from morning through till night spoke of the fact that he was fully God and fully man. Even his mother, the lady who pushed him out of her womb and fed him at her own breasts, watched over him as he grew up, came to worship him as the divine son of God who came from out there, from that other dimension, and came into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the evidence of his coming is based not on a few random sightings, but on the written testimony of men and women who knew him for more than three years, who lived with him, listened to him, observed him as he ate, as he washed his face in the morning, observed his every movement, felt the heartbeat of his spirit. They watched over him 24 hours a day, some of them, for three and a half years. They saw the way he died for the sins of the world. They witnessed his glorious resurrection. They, they saw him return to the place of glory from which he'd come. This was no religious leader who lived and died. This was the son of God who conquered death, not for himself, but for all who would trust their life and future to him. So the evidence of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is overwhelming. Not one fact of the New Testament has been disproved or destroyed over 2,000 years of observation, investigation, and examination. There's not, this, is, this was not done in a corner. It's there for all to see. It's been written down. These documents are not hidden away in some government vault. They are out there in Hebrew and Greek and in almost every language of the world. Well, you mustn't think that the appearance of these events was confined to Jesus and his day. Jewish Bible, our Old Testament, has a number of remarkable accounts of what God did supernaturally when he visited his people. Recently, we looked at the story of the three young men who were, who were placed in a burning, fiery furnace, so hot that the people who were putting them into that furnace were killed by the heat. And there in the furnace, these three young men walked in the midst of the flames and not one hair upon their head was touched. Neither were their garments singed and walking with them, walking with them in the, in the flames, in the furnace, in the crucible, was one like the Son of Man. That's pretty amazing. Today we look at this amazing incident recorded for us in chapter 5, the hand that writes on the wall. I've got these two, two points, that's all. The first one is the party in the palace. The party in the palace. At, at the beginning of chapter 5 of this book, we're introduced to a man called Belshazzar. Um, 
I spent a few minutes this morning try, trying to make sure that I pronounce it properly. But if you've done Hebrew at college, then my apologies, because I probably got it wrong. But the writer of the book draws a vivid contrast between this man, Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, and the man he talks about in the first four chapters, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has been the supreme ruler of the Babylonian Empire. He had not believed in the God of the Jews. After all, the God of the Jews had not been able to save Jerusalem and Judea from the mighty power of the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian armies, they'd come down, they'd destroyed Jerusalem, they'd taken thousands of the best people into exile. The God of the Jews had not been able to save them. So Nebuchadnezzar had no respect at all for the God of the Jews. But he showed some measure of understanding because he brought the, the, the sacred receptacles from the temple of God in Jerusalem. He brought them back to, uh, to Babylon and he placed them in one of the pagan temples. And you see that in chapter 4, verses 34 to 37. Because um, after an incident in the burning fiery furnace and after a personal incident in which he'd lost his mind and went out into the field and began to eat grass like the donkeys, when he was humbled by the mighty power of God, he became a believer in the God of heaven. I hope you noticed that I pronounced it grass. And it says here, in verse 34 and 30 and so on, uh, in, um, in Daniel chapter 4, that he praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded. He does what he pleases with all the powers of heaven. See, here is a king, great mighty king of Babylon, who is the emperor, and he comes in humility and bows before the God of, of uh, Daniel, the God of heaven, the true God. But when you come to the beginning of chapter 5, we find a different story. Nebuchadnezzar has died, has been replaced by a man called Nabonidus. Nabonidus, for some reason, Nabonidus is out of town, probably on some military campaign, and his son has stepped into his place of power. His name is Belshazzar. He's the second most powerful man in the realm. That's probably why when he offers Daniel a position of great power, he offers him third place. He only gets the bronze. Belshazzar has the silver and uh, Nabonidus has the gold. Well, Belshazzar not only has no faith in the true God, he's a blasphemer. His behavior, his mouth, his words, his heart are all shout out to us that he is against the God of the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar had a measure of respect and he brought the sacred vessels back from Jerusalem and placed them carefully in a temple. And then he came to full-blown faith in the God of Daniel. But now this man, this Belshazzar, is a blasphemer. I'm against the God of the Bible. That's essentially what he was saying. That was my situation until the last weekend of September 1960. I used my mouth and I used my heart to speak against the God of heaven. I used the name of Jesus as a blasphemous swear word in, in association with other filthy 
words in my language. I thought how so highly of myself that it mattered nothing to me that I used the fair name of Christ as a blasphemous expletive. But blasphemy is not simply words we use. There are many people who don't blaspheme verbally, but are nevertheless blasphemers. They're against the God of the Bible. Blasphemy means to speak against. Look at this man. Things were in a bad way in his kingdom at this time in Daniel chapter 5. Things are, things are, uh, there's a crisis occurring. It was October 539 BC, uh, half a millennium before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a foreign army in his country. Right then they were outside the gates of his city. The, the army of Darius the Mede was there, gathered outside the city of Babylon. But Belshazzar apparently wasn't worried because he's living in a fail-safe city. He's living in the equivalent of a bomb-proof shelter. And he was pretty sure that Nabonidus would return and relieve the pressure. The city's defenses would hold and the cavalry would come in due course. He feels so secure and so certain of the future that he can throw a huge party palace with a thousand VIP guests. The king was getting steadily drunk. While this too, while Belshazzar was drinking his wine. He gives orders in the middle of the feast to bring the sacred vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem and to bring them these vessels that had once been dedicated to the service and, and worship of the living God. They are there to be brought filled with wine and they drink as they drink. They, they praise the gods of idol of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. I don't know how many idols they had i don't know how many pagan gods they had but there were obviously a multiple number of gods in the babylonian religious atmosphere and this wasn't so much an act of religious worship as an act of defiance against the god of the jews it was as though this man belshazzar is doing his utmost to rubbish the god of of uh, moses the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants to show that this God is unbelievable, that he's contemptible, that he's unworthy of respect. This has always been in his heart, but now it's coming out under the influence of drink. When the wine freed up his inhibitions, he was free to express how he truly felt about Daniel's God. People who get drunk and behave stupidly often say, I don't know what got into me. Actually, the problem is it's not what got into them, it's what comes out of them. Because the, brink, the drink frees you up to let what's inside of you come out without any inhibitions. The blasphemy was in him, in his heart, and now it comes out. Well, these things are written here for our instruction, for our challenge. And it's asking you the question, what is your attitude towards the God of heaven? The God and Father of the Lord Jesus. Are you indifferent to him? Do you despise him? Do you think he's a, a figment of your imagination, people's imagination? Do you think that if he's there, he's not done a very good job with the world he made? Do you ridicule God with a joke? Do you put the words OMG in your tweets or in your Facebook posts? It grieves me when I 
see Christians doing that? Do you abuse his name as a swear word? Do you consider that it doesn't matter what you think about him or say about him because he simply isn't there to do anything about it? Anyway, that was my situation before the Holy Spirit brought me under deep conviction of my own sinful heart in October 1960. Anyway, here in the palace, there's a party going on in the palace, and there was Belshazzar drinking heavily, having a great time, telling his jokes about the foolish God of the Jews, the God of the Bible, the nobody God. But for him, the writing was on the wall. That's the second point. The writing on the wall. There's nothing better in one sense. I'm afraid I'm a little bit of a, when it comes to movies, I hesitate. I've said this before, but I hesitate to say it again. But I'm a, I like a, a good revenge movie. You know, Clint Eastwood pulling out his six gun. There's a great moment in open range. You've got to see it. Clint Eastwood says, you the one who killed my friend? Justice visited. There's nothing, nothing better in, in my view than seeing a boastful outlandish bully uh, be, turn into a sniveling coward in two minutes flat. I love that thing. Something about from the X-Files took place at this very moment. This man was drinking to his gods from the cups dedicated to the true and the living God. In verses five and six, you read this extraordinary account. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I like to think that his bodily functions failed to operate in other areas, but I won't go into that. Amazing. It was a miracle. This graffiti was put there by the hand of God or maybe by one of God's angels. It was on the wall in the light of the lampstand for all to see. It was in a prominent place and it was well illuminated. Belshazzar went pale, he trembled violently, nearly collapsed. Verse 23 tells us what was written. Do you remember that, verse 23? Or verse 26, I'll read it from verse 26. Meneh, God has numbered the days of your reign. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided, is going to be given to the Medes and the Persians. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. Simply the name of three Babylonian measures of weight. It would be similar to someone writing a pound, a stone, and half a pound on a wall. But what does it mean? What has happened? The, the, they send for all the best brains in the capital, the university professors, the astrologers, the intellectuals, the philosophers. They send for the academics and they send for the priests. But none of them knows what it means. And hearing all this tumult, of course, the queen comes from the scene and tells Belshazzar that he ought to send for the Hebrew man whose name used to be Daniel. In he comes, an older man by now, probably in his 80s. Sometimes older men do have a bit of use, especially when the pastors are on holiday. An older man, not by now in his 80s, he cuts through all the hullabaloo. He speaks a simple but devastating message. He addresses this rapidly sobering king, 
with awesome courage, your grandfather acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign, but you have not humbled yourself. Though you knew all this, you've set yourself against the Lord of heaven. You've praised the gods of silver and stone, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. What a turnaround. What a turnaround. How is it with us? How is it with you? Have you given honor and first priority in your life to all sorts of people and things, but have given no place at all in your heart to the God in whose hands is your life and breath? Do you give more honor to a football club than to the God of heaven, to a pop group, a hobby, a career, a family, than you do to the great and the living God? Some of the most terrifying words in the Bible. Verses 26 to 28, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. You're going to lose everything you've been living for. You think the God of the Bible is an unreal nonsense? But any moment now, that unreal nonsense is going to stretch out his mighty hand and deal with you in judgment. And all these things, these idols, these riches, this city with its hanging gardens, the hanging gardens of Babylon, it's all going to be useless to save you. This city, this amazing city, had a moat running all the way around it. It was impregnable. It had a double wall 56 miles long around the perimeter. The wall was high. It was thick enough for a four-horse chariot to turn round on the wall. There were a hundred fireproof gates, 25 in each one of the, of the four walls that uh, surrounded the city. Running right through the middle of the city was the river Euphrates that provided constant source of water. There, there were farms and, and gardens in the city that would keep people alive for years, even if the city was besieged. It was an impregnable stronghold. But look at verse 30. History tells us that the Persian army actually diverted the course of the river Euphrates. Isn't that amazing? Divert the course. Imagine trying to divert the river Thames so you could walk across from Greenwich to the Cutisark or wherever it is on, on dry bed. The Persian army diverted the course of the river Euphrates. They walked into Babylon on the riverbed and they took the city from the inside. That very night, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You see the picture? Some of us are old enough to remember going to the co-op. I used to go to the co-op in Failsworth, Manchester for my mother, taking with me my dividend number, our dividend number, and everything was weighed. They actually had scales where you put a pound weight in the left-hand scale, in the left-hand bowl, and then you measured out the sugar until it balanced. Weighed in the scales and balanced. That's the picture. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? Imagine somebody cutting chunks of butter and patting them all into one shape and then giving you it all wrapped up in nice grease through face. Well, we did things properly in the old days. None of that plastic rubbish that we wrap our food in. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm going off on one. Well, there's a pair of balances. It, 
In the one bowl, God Almighty puts his perfect standards, his laws of right and wrong. In the other bowl, he puts Belshazzar's life, your life. He does some weighing. And we've all been weighed in the balance and we've all been found wanting. God says, love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Have we? No, we don't weigh enough. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't be filthy minded. Don't be filthy hearted. Live a life of love towards me and other people. We've all been incredibly selfish and proud. We've been hurtful and cruel at times. We've been greedy and jealous. The balances of God show that here in the one balance is the mighty purity of almighty God. And in the other is you and me. It's me. And I have no righteousness that can balance up the great demands of the law of God. The New Testament says it is appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment. What are we going to do? We can't make up for what we've done wrong. We know that in the future... Given years of life, we're still going to be failures. We ne we're never going to be able to live up to the holy standards of a pure and holy God. The thought that the day of God's judgment ought to be enough to make our knees knock together. It's all right making fun of um, Belshazzar. But if we were to appear before the judgment of God as we are, it would make his party seem like a fun day. But God has offered us in Jesus Christ a solution. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he made it possible for all the wrong things that we've done to be taken out of our side of the scale and be replaced instead by the perfect, lovely righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, an, an extraordinary transaction takes place. Your sin is removed and pardoned, and the righteousness of Christ is placed to your account. The balances are balanced. The perfect righteousness of God, and in this bowl, you and Jesus. That's what we call justification by faith. Is there a possibility of you entering into eternal life through what Jesus did for you? Isn't that worth an eternal a look? If you're here this morning and you've not yet really grasped what the Christian faith is all about, it's about what Jesus Christ did for you and for me on the cross. And when he came into this world, he lived a perfect life so that he could place it in the balances of judgment for you. And then... He died on the cross to pay the price for our sin, for the broken law of God to be satisfied. And then he rose from death to make it possible for us to live forever. This is the gospel. The day of judgment's coming. There's going to be a record of all the things that we have done wrong but it's possible to go to the day of judgment without worrying about that because it's all been taken away by the death of Christ.
And as we face life in this world, which is so powerfully pagan, the God of Daniel is with us to use us for his glory.